0: Hello church. Thank you for tuning in. We're so glad that you've joined us for online church. Listen, wherever you're at, let us know where you're watching this from. Go to the comment section. If you're in Miami, let us know from what neighborhood you're watching this from. If you're outside of Miami, let us know what city you're watching this from. We're so excited today because we're launching a new sermon series with our Bridge family of churches. A lot of people have asked me, what is this Bridge family of churches thing? Uh, This is a family of churches that uh, Crossbridge has given birth to. Uh, These are churches that align in vision and in values. And we also share resources for ministry impact. One of the ways in which we share resources for ministry impact is by sharing content. So about four times a year, uh, we preach joint sermon series. And today, we're launching this series entitled Harp and Sword. Harp and Sword is a series based on the life of King David. David was both a poet and a warrior. David was a skillful musician. He played a harp, but he also was very skillful in wielding a sword David was a man of great passion, but he was also a man of great courage. My prayer during this series is that that you would be inspired to lead like David led, with great passion for God and for others, as well as with great courage in a time such as this. Now, Maybe you're watching me and you're asking the question, but pastor, I'm not a leader. Listen, you may not be a formal leader. You may not be a public leader. But everyone is a leader. Even if you're not leading anyone, you're still leading yourself. And when you lead people uh, with passion... And when you lead people with courage, you inject hope into any situation. You're able to inspire people. And when you're able to inspire people and inject hope into their lives, you're leading according to God's own heart. See, David was a king according to God's own heart. This is what the Bible tells us. He was a man of great favor. He received favor from God. And we are the people of God, and we also have the favor of God and the ultimate king of God. Jesus Christ. So today we would like to talk to you about this topic of favor. This is where the saga, where the story of David begins. And it begins in the book of 1 Samuel. So today I want to ask you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to read from chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. It's what the word of God says. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So as we think about this whole topic of favor, today we're going to address favor from three different angles. First, the loss of favor. Uh, Secondly, God's favor. And uh, lastly, man's favor. Let's start with Act 1, the loss of favor. Uh, This story starts with the loss of favor. It is interesting how uh, the story starts in the context of hopelessness. Isn't it interesting how... Hope always births from a context of hopelessness. I don't know how you are feeling today. I don't know if you are discouraged today. I don't know if you are hopeless today. In fact, let us know in the comment section. But if that happens to be you here today, I want to tell you, That God wants to encourage you. He wants to inject hope into your life. Hopelessness is the perfect soil for hope to sprout out. And so uh, we read there in verse 1 that Samuel, the prophet, is lamenting. He's mourning over the fact that King Saul has lost God's favor. Uh, Now, we must understand who Saul was, and we must understand why Saul lost God's favor. Uh, Saul was Israel's first king. He was crowned by popular demand. At one point in time in the history of the people of God, the people of God came to Samuel, his representative, his prophet, God's prophet, and said, hey, we no longer want God as our king. We want a king like all the other nations. We want a human king to rule over us. Now, when Samuel first heard that in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, He is deeply offended because he thought that that was a criticism on his leadership. He thought that the people were disapproving him as both a prophet and judge over the people. So he goes to God in prayer as a man of God would do. And he opens his heart to God and he says, God, can you believe what the people are asking? They are rejecting me as their leader. And God speaks to Samuel And he says, Samuel, let me put this thing into perspective. It is not you that they are rejecting as a leader. They are rejecting me as a king. And then God says something that was mind-boggling. He goes on and he says to Samuel, I want actually for you to go and to anoint them the king that they want. It's very interesting that uh, God actually allowed them to have what their hearts desire. Now, it's a very dangerous thing to ask God to fulfill your heart's desire. There is something that C.S. Lewis once said, that there's two kinds of people. There are those that go to God and say, God, your will be done. And there are those that God looks at them and says, your will be done. The reason why God allowed them to have that which their hearts desired is because God wanted them to learn through their failures. God wanted them to learn through their mistakes We do that as parents with our children, don't we? Sometimes we allow our kids to learn through their mistakes. When they are insisting on doing something that we disagree, we say, hey, go right ahead because that is the only way that they will learn. And so as a good father, that's what God concedes to the people of Israel. And so here comes Saul. Here comes Saul. And uh, Saul fits the royal profile of his days. Saul is strong. Saul is tall. Saul is the personification of what the people had desired in a king. Now, the irony of it all is this, is that even though Saul on the outside looked very stable and strong, on the inside, Saul was a very insecure and weak man. The Bible says that uh, as he is confronted by Samuel in the previous chapter. The reason why Saul... Uh, was a weak man on the inside It was because he suffered from a low self-esteem due to the fact that he had been born in the tribe of Benjamin, which was the smallest and the weakest tribe among the Israelites. Yet God shows grace to Saul and calls him out of the smallest tribe and the weakest tribe of Israel and turns him into a king over all of Israel. But it still wasn't enough for Saul. Instead of building his identity in God, instead of allowing himself to bathe in God's love, Saul built his identity over the approval of the people. And he allowed his internal demons to speak louder than God's love for him. And that influenced every single decision that Saul now makes. After disobeying God in the previous chapter, and after being confronted by Samuel, he admits it. He says, I did it. Because I feared the people. And that happens so much that at one point, God says, hey, I have regretted from making Saul king over my people. So the passage that we read starts with Samuel's grief. Samuel is not only deeply grieving the loss of a king to a nation, but he's deeply grieving the loss Of a friend. You see, Samuel loved Saul. He had good moments with Saul. Not everything was bad, there were good times as well. And he's grieving that. It's that feeling that we all have when somebody that we love wastes their lives and wastes their potential, like Saul is wasting here. But not only that, uh, Samuel is grieving the fact that he knew that things would never go back to how they were before. And not only that, he is also afraid of the future. He is not sure if Saul is coming after him, if he's going to lose his job as judge and prophet of the people. He is not sure if God is going to provide even a new king for Israel. And it's in that moment of deep grief, in that moment of complete inner devastation, that God comes to Samuel. And when God comes to Samuel, he does two things. He first asks him a question, and then he makes a statement. He asked him a question. He says, how long will this grieving last? In other words, God is coming to Samuel and saying, you know, will you live your life now in light of the past or will you look forward to the future? Will you look at your life from the perspective of a rearview mirror or will you look at the windshield and see the road ahead? And that is, it has everything to do with the next thing that God does, which is God says to him right there in verse one still, fill your horn with oil and go. And I have provided for myself a king. He is saying, I want you to live your life now, not in in light of the past. I don't want the discouragement to set in and set roots into your lives and paralyze you, Samuel. But I want you to look forward to the new season that I have for you, the new season that I have for Israel. I am restoring their hope in the life of a new king that I have appointed for myself. Now, you know what? Some of us are living that exact situation right now. Many of us are mourning the fact that our lives will never go back to the same as they were before. Many of us are unsure about the future. We don't know what the future holds. We are anxious. We are afraid, like uh, Samuel was here in this passage. And God comes to us in a moment such as this, church, and he's shaking us, and he's asking us, church, church, my people, Will you live your life and will you focus on that which you've lost or will you focus on that which you will gain? Are you focusing on the new season that I have for you? Will you get up? God is saying to us, church, pick up your horn. I'm filling it again with oil. It's a season of hope. The new wine is coming forth, it's flowing. I am about to do something great. Church, I believe that. I am praying that out of this season, God will bring a huge revival that will swipe over the planet and over the globe. I'm praying during this season that people would be spiritually reawakening. I'm praying during this season that you, you that are at home right now, that God would come into your life, would visit you, will change you, that you will reorganize your priorities, restructure your loves, that you would put him first. I believe in a season such as this. See what God was saying to Samuel is the same thing that he's saying to us here today. He is saying that my future is better than your past. Do you believe that? See, church, we can trust in that. You know why we can trust? Because God has been faithful in the past. The reason why I can trust God with my future is because he's been faithful in the past. And as we continue to read the passage shortly thereafter, Samuel goes out and he anoints David as king. And we all know that David is the king that God has been pointing to. He is pointing to his ultimate king that would come a thousand years later, comes Jesus. And he's hailed as the one who is the son of David. He is the risen Christ. He is the one who is working all things for good, including in this season. He is the one that is making all things new And it's because we can trust God and his work in the past. Today, we can rest assured that God's future is better than our past. Will you believe that with me?
1: Well, act two has to do with God's favor. And I'm going to read You're following along. First Samuel chapter 16, verses 6 through 13. This is what God's word says. And so when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, And Jesse made Shammah pass by and said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for he will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was a handsome a boy, and the Lord said, "Arise, anoint him for this is he and Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. David was uh, insignificant, apparently in his family; he was ignored, he was overlooked uh he wasn't even invited to the sacrifice, he's not even invited to the feast. In fact, he's so insignificant, his father doesn't even call him by his own name. He says, hey, bring, uh, bring the youngest over here in verse 11. But, but God is choosing the, the rejected son of Jesse, not only to bless him, but to make him king, because God sees what we cannot. And you would have thought that Samuel, the prophet, at this stage in his life, would have learned this lesson with, with Saul. But you see, Samuel is right here again. He's basing uh, uh, the impressions that he has. He's judging people based on the outside. He's he's impressed with how these brothers look. They're tall in stature. And you know what? If we're honest, we do the exact same thing. We we got a tendency to judge people based on the outside appearance, whether, whether they have status or they don't have status, whether they're wealthy or they're not wealthy, whether they're beautiful or plain. We have a lot to learn from God. God is always choosing people and how God works. And ultimately, when we learn this, we will ultimately do what Samuel did here, is to look to God for discernment and wait for his choice, whether that's a a business partner, a a relational partner, or, or, or a leader. Because God sees what we cannot. God's choices, man, they're always surprising. They're always surprising me. They're surprising uh, in its rejections. They're surprising in its receptions. They're even surprising in their requirements. Notice here that God is looking for a king. He doesn't go looking at the palaces. He doesn't go to the temples. He doesn't go to the places of influence and wealth and power. He goes to the most unlikely place, and he chooses the most unlikely person. He chooses the youngest, the weakest, the outsider. And here's the cool part the one who becomes the honored guest at the feast is the one who wasn't even supposed to have a seat at the table. What is God looking for? What is he searching for when the Bible says that God looks at the heart? And if we're supposed to be favored by God and blessed by God, I want to know, is there a sign? Is there a sign that we're favored by God? Well, listen how The Ezra, the scribe, would write in Chronicles when he says this. He says, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. This is an amazing promise. You know what Ezra is saying? He says God's eyes are are continually, they're like aggressively searching for people who are crying out to him for help. God is wanting to demonstrate his power in the hearts of people who are relying on him and not on other people. It's, it's like if I said, you know, uh, uh, for example, virologists, right? The eyes of virologists are ranging throughout our city. They're seeking to find a vaccine for COVID-19 or any other contagious virus because we all want to live in a, in, in a community-free virus uh, you know, zone, a free virus zone in the community. It, it, and what do I mean by that? What I mean is that's their job. It goes along with the nature of being a virologist. And so what Ezra is saying here is that God's eyes are ranging through the earth. When he's saying that God's eyes are ranging through the earth and he's looking to empower he's looking to strengthen hearts here, what he means is that this is right at the heart of what it means to be God. And by the way, God is not just doing this on the weekends. He's not just doing this as a hobby. This is not something he's doing after hours at the park. This is what God is doing all the time, every single place, right? This is God He's looking to demonstrate. He's looking for opportunities to demonstrate his power on behalf of weak people who are relying on him and not on man. This is the God. This is the God and Father of our, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, who loved us, who, who gave himself for us, this is the God who listens to our prayers. This is the God who created the universe and holds it together. This is the God who is right now in your living room teaching you through His Word to call on Him and depend on Him with every single need that you have. Why? Because God sees what we cannot. And God is looking at David's heart and He tells the old prophet, This is the guy. This is the guy that I want. This is the guy I'm going to anoint, the king. Of Israel. Now, back in the day, the oil was used to represent, uh, you know, symbolic of power. Power to dispense light, life, joy, healing. And right here, the oil is used to, to represent or to communicate all of the graces that David is going to need to take on this monumental task. And the grace that David needs right here in this precise moment is the power to exercise patience because although he's anointed here, we're gonna learn in the weeks to come, it takes years, years and years will go by before he actually becomes king. You know, sometimes the for the word of God to come to pass in our life, there's a lot of things that need to move. You might be ready, but but the stage might not be set. You might be ready, but your family and your children are not ready. You might be ready, but the circumstances that God is using to set up are not set up yet. And this is what God is doing here. He's setting up all of the circumstances that's going to take this little shepherd boy who was probably out there, I don't know, picking his nose, swatting flies out in their field. He's going to make him the king of Israel. The text tells us here that Samuel anoints David in the presence of his family. I want you to underline this. The spirit of the Lord came upon him. I often wonder that day when David was just walking back after the party, when later on he would pen the words in Psalm, famous Psalm, Psalm 23, that he wasn't thinking about this exact moment. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He prepares a table before me. He anoints my head with oil. So here's the sign, right? Here's the sign. The reason we know as believers that we're favored by God is because we have been given... The power of his Holy Spirit, the indwelling power of God the Holy Spirit in us permanently to give us power, to give us grace, to give us the anointing that we need to see what God wants us to see. Well, what does God want us to see? What exactly does God want us to see? Listen to how the Apostle John says it in 1 John 2.20. He says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, speaking of Jesus, and you all have knowledge. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And so this anointing, this healing, this this sight-giving power that the Holy Spirit, this sight-giving oil that he gives us, it will always lead us. It will always lead us to believe to David's most imminent descendant and Lord, the person who will satisfy every single need that we're ever going to have, Jesus always lead us to the holy anointing one, Jesus. And so the sign that we've been favored by God is that our hearts, our hearts are now able to see the things or of the things that we hear about Jesus and, and, and know about Jesus and not just know, but, but, but hold these, pre, these precious truths to our heart. They're precious. They're, they, they become real to us. And when we know the truth about Jesus, we'll know this. We'll know it's the result of God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in our hearts, causing us to see, because God has found a heart to demonstrate his power and his grace and his anointing to those who are fully
2: committed to him. Man, that's so good. God is faithful. If you believe that, will you throw up the raise the roof emoji in the comment section of the chat? We're moving into Act 3 now here in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And we're closing with verses 14 through 23. So if you have your Bible, will you read along with me? It says, Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service and Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. So David has been anointed king. God's favor is upon him, but Saul is still reigning as king. And as we read here in the beginning of our passage, God has sent an evil spirit to torment Saul. You read that and you're like, wait, why? Why is God sending an evil spirit to torment Saul? Is God being vindictive? Is is God reading this and saying, uh, hey Saul, you really failed at being king, so now I'm going to kind of pile on and I'm going to send a spirit to torment you. Is that what God is doing? See, to understand how God uses judgment in our lives and how he uses consequences in our lives, there's an illustration I think is helpful. I want you to imagine a judge a judge that you go before because you have 20 unpaid parking tickets. Some of you can relate to this. And the judge says, I'm going to suspend your license for six months, and I'm letting you know if you have another parking ticket, your license is going to be removed from you. Now, does the judge suspend your license and then threaten to remove the license from you if you get another unpaid parking ticket because he's enticing you to go out there and not pay for parking? Of course not. He's giving that consequence to you, and he's challenging you to actually pay for parking as you're supposed to. And this is what God's judgment here is doing with Saul, and it's the way God operates. He allows consequences to come, and he brings about judgment for the sake of repentance. It's actually motivated by love. God is trying to wake up Saul to the reality of his sin and his brokenness, that he has failed as a king, that he has gone down the wrong path, and so now the Spirit is here to awaken him to the reality that he needs to return back to God. And so Saul is facing this, and he talks to the servants, and they say, listen, we got to do something. We need something to refresh you, to help you as you're being tormented, And so Saul loves hearing the harp or the lyre played, and so they go find a man to do that. And the man is David. You see, we as people face tormenting spirits too. Saul is very relatable in this sense. Every single person in this world suffers from a tormenting spirit or types of tormenting spirits. We have deep-seated sin and brokenness that affects every area of our life. It affects the way we think. It affects the way we treat people. It affects the way that we respond to certain situations, and we are very aware of these things. We understand how they influence us. We understand their presence and their persistence in our life, whether it be pride or greed or lust or insecurity, like was the case for Saul, or whether it be envy or selfishness or dishonesty. We have these things that plague us. And like Saul, we look for refreshment and beauty and things that we enjoy. Saul is relatable, but he is not respectable. That is reserved for David. And David is an incredible man. As as a young boy, we read this about him in verse 18. It says that he was skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, Prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord was with him. He is a man of war, a man of valor. He is very skillful in playing the harp. He's a man of good presence. You want to be around him. He's careful in his speech, and God is with him. And so the servants send for David. They bring David back to the palace to play for Saul, but David doesn't know this. You have to imagine how David felt. He's just been anointed king. Of Israel by Samuel. And now the king who is reigning over Israel, Saul, is sending for him. David has to imagine that this is his death march. That his life is over. Saul has somehow found out that David has been anointed king. It's time to say goodbyes. Pack your bags and go. And he gets to the palace. And we don't know exactly how the interaction takes place in the beginning, when it's made aware to David that he's just there to play the harp for Saul. But we see the effect. The effect is in verse 21 and 22. It says that David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, David's dad, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. David is confronted with darkness Saul is in the midst of darkness as this tormenting spirit is affecting him and when he's confronted with darkness what does David do does he run he could have when he heard that Saul was sending for him he could have said guys I'm packing my bags I'm going into the wilderness you're never going to see me again I'm getting as far away from Saul and all that darkness as possible he doesn't run he packs his bags and he courageously goes Now, when he gets to Saul and he realizes that he's actually just there to play the harp to help refresh and ease the discomfort that Saul is facing in the midst of his darkness, does David think to himself, let me play poorly because then it will torment Saul more and then hopefully he'll break down so then I can assume the throne that I have been anointed to. That would have been a good strategy, but he doesn't do that. He plays beautifully. He doesn't approach Saul with a combative or, pre, or, com, or competitive spirit at all. He comes before him and he refreshes him in a way that he has been prepared for, in a way that he knows how, by playing the harp. You see, when we inject beauty into darkness, God's favor is there. God has positioned David's life for this moment. God's grace is actually being extended to Saul to help wake him up to the reality of his mistakes through David's ability to play the harp as he experiences this beauty and enjoys the sounds that come from the instrument. God has positioned all of this. And when we bring beauty into darkness, God's favor is there. We're seeing that happen right now. All over our society and in our city, we're seeing beauty injected into darkness and God's favor is there. Many of you have been a part of Zoom uh surprise birthday parties. I've been a part of a few and it's a beautiful thing. The surprise and the joy and the laughter. There have been parades for graduating seniors of people driving down the road to have a graduation ceremony. It's beautiful. In downtown in Brickle, every single night at 8 PM, people go on their balconies and they play music and they bang pots and pans as a sign of gratitude and respect for healthcare workers. It's beautiful. And a week ago, one of the most famous DJs in the world, David Guetta, played a fundraiser in Brickle that raised for $700,000 for organizations like Feeding America. And it was free. Amazing. Beautiful. When you inject beauty into darkness, God's favor is there. Now you may think, how is God's favor there? I mean, some of these people aren't Christians. These aren't Christian events. But see, whenever beauty is injected into darkness, God is there in the midst. Because God is the author, and he is the essence of beauty. Where there is beauty, there is God. Where there is beauty, there is God. There's a question, a challenging question to ask yourself. It comes in the form of, of two different lessons that come from David's life here. The first question is this. Who is God calling you to run towards? Who is God calling you to run towards and inject beauty into their life as they are facing physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual darkness? Who is facing darkness that God is calling you to run towards and not away from? And then, secondly, how is God calling you to inject beauty into their darkness, into their life? How? You may think to yourself, I have no special skills. I can't play the harp. I, I, I don't know how I can inject beauty into someone's life. Well, God has positioned you to do that. You see, Saul was uniquely positioned, and he desired to experience the beauty of a harp. But your friend may want to experience the beauty of a plate of brownies. You could send a letter to somebody. You could reach out to somebody and on the phone and just say, hey, I'm just calling to encourage you and inject beauty into their life. You could offer to mentor someone professionally that is struggling. You could offer to mentor someone spiritually that has questions and doubts. You could offer to support someone financially that is facing difficulty. There are so many different ways that you can inject beauty into someone's life. And God is calling you, yes you, to do that. To inject beauty into the lives of others. You see church, we are flawed people. We have tormenting spirits that affect us, and we're very aware of them. And how did God address us in the midst of our darkness? Does he come to us and say, hey, listen, fix yourself, get yourself right, get holy, and then come back to me when you've kind of cleaned up a bit? No, God comes to us in the midst of our darkness, and he brings beauty. He brings the good news of the gospel of grace, that we are saved by grace and not works, That God's love is a gift and not a wage. And that life transformation comes through truth presented beautifully, not forcibly. You see, Christ has come to give his life for you and for me and for our darkness. He paid for it and he came forth alive on the third day, resurrected to bring us into a life of beauty. He brings beauty into our darkness. And you and me, we are called to now bring beauty into the darkness that others are facing. Will you do that, church? You may be sitting here and thinking throughout this service, I feel like that unlikely person to receive God's favor. I feel like God's favor has been taken away from me. I kind of feel like Saul, and I feel like I'm not worthy to be David. I really want to experience that beauty that God can inject into the darkness of my life. Well, here's the beauty of who our God is, is that he invites you in. He invites you in with your brokenness, with your sin, with your shame, with your guilt, to come to him. And he says, knock at the door. Come. I'm knocking. You just open the door. I'm right here for you to come in and to receive me. And it's as easy as coming in through prayer, through coming to the Lord and knowing that he's here for you, that his promises are true, that he's faithful. And so I'm going to invite us to pray together. Maybe you want to pray to actually invite God into your life for the first time. You feel like that unlikely person, but God looks for unlikely people to pour his favor upon. Or maybe you have felt distant from God for a season. Well, God is calling you back to himself to know that he is there, he is beautiful, and he has a calling for you to inject beauty in the lives of others. So I'm going to pray and invite you to pray with me as we close our service, believing in a God of beauty. So will you pray with me? Father, God, we thank you that you love us not because of what we have done, but Jesus, because of what you have done for us. We believe that you gave your life on a cross for our darkness so that we May cling to you to find refreshment as we face tormenting spirits. God, we believe that you are a God of beauty, that you are a God that is faithful, that you love us, and that's a gift, not a wage. Transform us by the beauty of your word, God, and call us to live lives of beauty, being injected into darkness. Use us for your name and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.